another second, another minute, another hour, another day, another week, another month, and it's that time for Strongcast. Hello, everybody. I'm Armstrong Williams, and the cast is strong today. Uh, yes, the cast is strong. Jason, what's happening, man? Not much. Happy to be here. How's the uh, weekly examiner? Uh, the Washington examiner is going well. But it's weekly, right? No, that's the weekly standard. The weekly examiner, the Washington examiner. I want to make sure you realize where you work. I was testing you. Oh, yeah. Brad, not Columbo. No, Brad Palumbo. Palumbo. He's Plumbo. Palumbo, what's happening, man? Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Well, you're welcome. I'm going to speak as a CEO today, as an employer. Did something happen um, a couple of weeks ago that really didn't get the kind of notice, the notoriety, and the attention that it was deserved. The president announced a major restructuring government of combining the Department of Labor and the Department of Education. So I started thinking about it. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized there's more of a synergy that these two agencies have than any other agencies in government. Hmm. Because when you think about, for me as an employer, and what colleges and technical places and other places are producing today, there's just some kids are just not getting the education. They're not getting the necessary training to meet the new job market or the old job market. And this is what the education experience should prepare you for. Uh, it's for a career. Now, it doesn't guarantee you that you'll get a job and that you will live the American dream, but it is a passport. And so what I wanted to do was engage both of you um, to talk about what that would mean, what would it look like, and why do you think that it could possibly work or won't work? Yeah, I think it could work because, uh, well, especially because, like you said, they do have a lot in common. Basically, you get educated so that you can later go into the workforce, labor. Uh, so in, in that sense, uh, their missions are very well aligned. But uh, one of my concerns is that we'll start to see, not necessarily from Republicans, but possibly from Democrats or uh, possibly either party, is that you try to see a, a, a like top-down training of the workforce where uh, you know, the Department of Labor says, okay, here's what we should do education-wise. And, uh, you know, my, in my opinion, I think that when it comes to education, the government should, uh, you know, the government doesn't create jobs, right? It just creates the economic conditions for entrepreneurs to create jobs. And that's kind of how I view education, is that the government can't uh, educate a student well, but they can put in place the conditions for a teacher, for a school, for parents to educate their children well. And so I'm worried that the Department of Labor, not necessarily under Trump, but possibly in the future, might do a kind of top-down, oh, here's what we need for the workforce, so here's what the education department should do. Yeah, so I'm all for condensing as much of the federal government bureaucracy as possible. But what I hope is that we're not just rearranging things. I want to see Trump back up his promises to shrink the size of government. Right, we have more federal employees today. He had a federal hiring freeze for a while, then he stopped it. 
right? So the federal government is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's, it's doing more and more things, but is it really being successful? So sure, I'd like to see these departments combined, but hopefully also condensed and cut down and get back to their true purpose, mm -hmm. cut out the fluff, cut out the waste, cut out the extra. But I do think there's some overlap, and I think there's some potential uh, there for them to be combined successfully. But if, if you shrink government, which I think there's a strong prob probability in merging these two departments, you're certainly going to eliminate many jobs. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and the government employee jobs, which are, is, is ideally not the jobs that you want to have, of course. But, uh, but I think Brad's got a good point. You know, if these departments merge, but they stay essentially doing the same thing, uh, and you don't you know, cut down on the you know, wasteful programs that are in the Department of Education, then are you really minimizing any damage, or are you just you know, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic? So uh, yes, it's a good idea to merge these departments, I think. And I think it's especially a, good, a great idea politically. You know, Trump can say, you know, I got rid of the Department of Education, which Ronald Reagan promised to do, and Republican candidates have been trying to do for years and years and years. Uh, but then you know, if Democrats complain about Trump eliminating the Department of Education, you can say, well, we didn't eliminate it. We just merged it with the Department of Labor. It's still there, still doing what uh, you know, what it's supposed to do. So politically, I think it's a big winner. But how do you think the president do you, finds himself at a place where he promotes the possibility that the two should be merged? Um, and the results for those that you're trying to impact the most, these young college kids and the workforce will, in the future will be the greatest beneficiary. Do you think it's principle? Do you think it's politics? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, I, I, he's had this idea for a long time, and I think uh, Republican, not bureaucrats, but Republicans who are in these cabinet leadership positions uh, are certainly pushing this, and they are the ones who are, have the expertise and know that they can make this work. Uh, Betsy DeVos and uh, Alex Costa are, are some of the, my favorite members of Trump's cabinet, um, even though most people don't like Betsy DeVos. But I, I think why they have... You, why do you respect her? Well, I think she uh, does a great job of, of understanding what the Department of Education's role ideally is. And that's not uh, pushing a certain Republican or Democratic agenda. It's just saying, we're going to let the states and local schools do what they do best, rather than trying to get the federal government to tell them what to do. And she does that very well. You know, most bureaucrats would say, oh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take power, and we're going to tell you that this is the best way to do things. Uh, she just is doing a great job of, of letting local schools and state schools do what they do best. And the labor secretary? Yeah, well, he, he, again, he understands very well you know, the purpose of his department. He's staying out of the way of employers. He's uh, you know, but still doing a great job of, of promoting President Trump's agenda, uh, especially when it comes to labor unions and, and, not make, and making sure that they don't have too much power and too much sway over uh, politics. You know, uh, Brad, speaking of labor unions, uh, it is a fact that this Trump White House is eliminating labor unions throughout the federal government. Mm -hmm. And that process is already taking place. What are the benefits of this? Um, and what will be the final results in the long run? Well, you know, I think sometimes labor unions can have a, a corrosive effect on what we want to see as progress, right? Especially, I'm thinking of teacher unions in particular, can really stop meaningful education reform like school choice and other things. So anytime we're limiting the power of unions, especially unions that mandate people who don't even want to be in them, 
to be in them, I think that's a, that's a win for freedom. I think there's um, a possibility of, of really pushing some progress by do going down that path. And I think that in the case of the federal government, those unions, it's all about unclogging this massive bureaucracy, whether it's through uh, busting up unions or doing uh, like combining departments, we have this massive federal government that's doing so much more than it was ever supposed to and doing it so much less efficiently than we would hope mm -hmm. um, that anything that we can do to try to address that problem, I'm, I'm going to support. So let me, let me, let's, let's do, I want to stay with the government and the bureaucracy. And this is a strong cast. I'm your host, Armstrong Williams. Jason and Brad are joining us. The president also has put in place guidelines to make it easier for government officials to fire incompetent government employees. Now, I must tell you, I had a brief stint with the government, and I can't tell you the incompetency and the inefficiency and how you have five or six people doing the same job, mm -hmm. and how some people just show up to work and just can't wait for the four o'clock and they leave, and they will tell you they literally have nothing to do. I've seen. We've done specials on the government. And I tell you, literally, I've walked through offices where the woman's fingernails from here to here. And I ask myself, how can she type? How can, I mean, and literally, if you engage her long enough, you find out she really doesn't do anything. Nor, and because it's been that way for so long, she doesn't know how to do anything. Mm. So I don't understand why people would push back on eliminating incompetency in the federal role. Oh yeah, well, uh, accountability is, is seen as a threat <laughs> to a lot of that, you know? Uh, the, the, the public government uh, employee unions, right, they, they don't want to see anyone fired because uh, then they'll show that, you know, you can, you can get the, you wanna, they want to have six people doing the job that one person can do because that means more union dues coming to them. So anytime that they can, you know, get rid of accountability and, and not have to be held accountable, they love it. So. But you're absolutely right. There, there's very little accountability. There's so many people that you know don't uh, favor this common sense rule. They see it as an attack on. Uh, but it, it's not an attack. It, it's just saying we want our government to work better. And if you like big government, you should want to it to be held accountable. That way you can fire the people that are doing poorly in government and make government work better. And then you can try to show that big government works. But uh, big government doesn't work if you have six people doing the job that one person can do. Yeah, and if you need if you need any example, when people question me, they're like, what do you mean the government's so inefficient? I ask them, when was the last time you went to the DMV? Right, you, so you want those people and that inefficient kind of a system running our health care, right? Running private industries? I don't think so. Right, so I think that the, the case that whether government can do things efficiently, we've seen time and time and time and time again that they really can't. So we do need to be looking into ways where we can streamline this process. Because you're right, we have six people doing the same job. I will tell you this coming at it from the perspective of higher education. Right, mm -hmm. I attend a public university, and there are six vice chancellor, assistant provost, deans of academic studies who all do nothing. And they all just sit around a table every day and collect 100K salaries from the taxpayer. And you could have one person do the job for every five of those people. Right? And then maybe college wouldn't cost $30,000 a year for a public in-state college. Right? But this is the kind of government waste that we see, that we've seen with the expansion of the federal government, with the growth of state governments. Right? And that's the kind of corrosive stuff we have to come back on. So and you're listening to podcasts, uh, Strongcast. I'm your host, Armstrong Waves. So, so Jason Russell, um, with the Washington Examiner, uh, how efficient and productive 
is Congress? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Congress as a whole is uh, a mixed bag. I think the House does pretty well. I think Paul Ryan actually gets more flack than he deserves. They do a good job of, of passing things fairly quickly. And remember, when everybody wanted to, when Republicans ran for Congress and they promised to repeal Obamacare, it was the House that actually did repeal Obamacare. It was in the Senate uh, where Mitch McConnell was unable to make that happen. So I have a lot of respect for the House and the work that's being done there. Uh, not that I agree with every sing single thing that happens, but I, I think the Senate is where much of the holdup is under Mitch McConnell. Uh, not only does it just go very slowly, which it, it always has, but still there are rules that you can put in place to make the Senate go faster. You know, work weekends, work nights for once, uh, you know, spend extra hours. And uh, there are rules changes that they can make to make sure that uh, Democrats can't obstruct as much as they are. So the House I have a lot of respect for. The Senate has some work to do, literally and figuratively. So, 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 so Brian, let me take um, Jason's perspective. I don't want to get into the issues of immigration, um, the issues of what happens with so many things that has gotten to the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court has had the rule on in terms of voter laws. I, I, I want to take it to this place um, in terms of th this commentary when it comes to these issues. If Congress were doing their job, would issues like immigration and other issues that this president is faced with, with be an issue today or we would be moving on to more important issues? Is it a reflection that Congress has continued to kick the can down the road so long, so many other issues that we still, because listen, this is not about immigration, but I'm using this as an example. The images that they were using for, with the kids were from the Obama administration. They were not even from Trump. I mean, this issue was Bush's Achilles heel, was Obama's Achilles heel, and now it's Trump's Achilles heel. And we rather love to talk about they don't do anything with immigration reform, they're insensitive. But what role does Congress play and has continued to face these same issues every two or four years. You know, that's part of the problem, that Congress has really abdicated a large part of their proper role in our system of government. You know, why did we have DACA, right, which was an executive action? We had DACA doing something it probably can't even legally do because Congress failed to pass a law that would have done the same thing. Right? So, and that's the same thing we see with our current immigration system and its failures, right? There's so many bills that have come up and on immigration that would have offered some type of comprehensive reform and really uh, ironed out the, the kinks that we're still seeing come up, and they can't get through. They either can't get through the Senate or they, can, they can't get through the House, right? And so we're seeing this political well, dysfunction. No, they, they can get through. They can be effective. Why is it that it doesn't get through? Obviously, it politics, and it's politics to the detriment of we the people. So who are these individuals that has this kind of power that stop this legislation in its track from ever seeing the light of day? Well, it depends on which piece of legislation we're talking about. But for right now, like if you look at the House Compromise Bill on Immigration that's coming through right now, part of the reason that can't get through is because of the House Freedom Caucus, right, which is taking a very hard-line position on immigration. And so they're blocking the passage of a fairly reasonable, moderate compromise bill. But the other half is 
Democrats, right? Democrats will not get on board with almost anything mm -hmm. that has Trump's name on it. Because they want him to fail. Yeah, well, they obviously want him to fail. They want hashtag resist, and they want to, they want to take over uh, in in the next election, right? So. I think you can point to the you can point to the cause of the dysfunction in a couple different places, mm -hmm. but really there's very few people in Congress who don't share some of the blame. Well, the, well, as we lay blame at the feet of the Democrats, it's the same thing that happens when Republicans they do the same. Is that nobody? There are no clean hands mm -hmm. in this process. When will it, the system ever? function for the American people, because you may imagine the issues that it create, that linger, that create more issues, and then you can't even focus on the issues that will come. And we're still bogged down, and it seems like that this, this, this country has an albatross around its neck, and then it divides us, and then we have to pick sides. Right. Well, I think a lot of the issue is that very few members of Congress actually want to do their job and do the job of a legislator, right? If you are in the opposition, like the Democrats are now, but sometimes the Republicans too, then you don't want to pass any bills because then you can, you know, just obstruct and resist and whatever. If you are in the majority party, then anything you do is something that the opposition can use to attack you. So, uh, you know, that applies right now on immigration, but also on tariffs uh, that applies on you know legislation regarding uh, special counsels and things like that so uh, there are so many ways in which Congress not just now but in the past has abdicated its role to the executive branch uh, because they don't want to do anything that could make them get attacked the only time when we haven't when we've seen Congress do well in its job of, of actually legislating uh, is in times of national unity right like after September 11th we saw lots of bills just fly through Congress uh, because the country was very unified. Uh, nobody wanted to be politically divided, so and it wasn't. And it wasn't when the people lead. Yeah, and it wasn't just about uh, you know terrorism or uh, you know Iraq war related item legislation. <coughs> it was about uh, education. That's when we saw No Child Left Behind passed. Not that that was a great bill, but it was a bipartisan bill. Then we saw you know tax cuts pass as well, and and I think those there were somewhat bipartisan as well. So that was when, in times of national unity, is when uh, we see that happen. And, and national unity isn't something that Congress can just create, right? That's something that is just a a cultural aspect that sometimes uh, America is unified and sometimes it's not. So so Brad, the most respected and the most popular, consistent branch of government is the United States Supreme Court. Now let's take a look at the Supreme Court. There's never this bickering. There's never maligning each other. They're always dignified. There's a profound respect. But also, they don't have to run around the country every two or four or six years to get reelected. They don't have to cater to special interest groups. And they don't have to do favors. So has the system created the kind of gridlock that we see today? And did our founding fathers have it right? And does something needs to change? Well, so I definitely agree that that's why the Supreme Court has that kind of respect and that flexibility. Um, but I will push back that, you know, some of the gridlock is intentional, right? Some of that is put into our found, from our founding fathers, put into our system of government as checks and balances. We're not supposed to have a system where it's super easy to radically change things, right? Because we don't want to have a democracy, a, a de democratic system that would be just tyranny of the majority. Oh, Democrats win and win one election, they can impose their will on everything, right? That's not how it's supposed to be. So legislating is supposed to be a complicated affair. It's supposed to have roles for the for the minority party, but it has broken down too far. 
are. And I think that part of that is because the American people are really broken and divided. Mm -hmm. And I think when you look at our system of government, yes, it's tough and we're frustrated with it, but I do very much prefer it to the, uh, you know, the legislative systems that we see uh, you know, across the world you know, with, with parliaments and things like that that are unicameral where uh, you know, they don't even vote on a, a national leader. They just vote for you know, their local members to represent them, and then those members go in and vote for the prime minister. Um, <clears throat> And so, you know, you see legislation move a lot faster in those countries, but uh, sometimes you don't want legislation to move fast, right? Like that's how the UK and so many foreign countries have uh, a much more, I think, uh, larger federal governments and, and larger bureaucracies and less accountability to the public is because uh, they can move legislation so quickly. So if there's a groundswell of support for uh, universal nationalized health care, then it's very quickly to pass that. Um, you know, in the United States, you have to pass that through the House of Representatives, which moves very quickly, but the Senate is much more deliberative, which, yes, I just complained about, but um, if, it's, if that's what it takes to have a Senate that keeps us from having nationalized health care, then, then that's one benefit of a, a Senate that moves very slowly. So, yeah. So, um, Brad Palumbo, what do you do? So I'm a writer over at Young Voices. Uh, so I'm freelancing, coming on shows like this, um, working with the editorial team there. Um, and so Young Voices, we are a nonprofit focusing on uh, editing and doing pitching services for young aspiring uh, pro-liberty writers. What has prepared you for this? What has prepared me for all this? Your background. Uh, so I have been a writer for a couple years now, written for the Washington Examiner, National Review, uh, Boston Globe, done all sorts of... No high school or college background? Oh, yeah, no, no, yeah, I have. Oh. Um, <laughs> I think you should share that with our... Audience. Oh, sure, yeah. So yeah. I'm over at the U University of Massachusetts Amherst. I'm a senior, a rising senior, studying economics and political science. So you're still in college? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And Jason? Oh, well, uh, you know, I've been at the Washington Examiner and for that. three and a half years. Before that, I spent a year at the Manhattan Institute in their DC office. And before that, I went to college at the University of Rochester and studied economics and political science, so. How difficult is it covering the government and all the issues that is like supersonic speed? It does, it does move very quickly, and it's hard to keep up sometimes, but uh, one of the benefits of my role is that I am in kind of a managerial editor role. So I, uh, you know, I see all the things that are happening, and it's not up to me to write about every single one of them, but I know enough people that are A, on our staff, or B, contributors to the examiner, where I can just say, uh, you know, I'm not going to be the best person to write about this, but you know, who might be is so-and-so, um, you know, and have them write about it. Uh, for example, you know, one of our staff writers, Tom Rogan, uh, is just a, a fantastic foreign policy expert. Um, so, you know, that, that's what will happen when your dad works in the State Department. So, um, uh, he does a, whenever there's a foreign policy issue, it's easy to say, okay, Tom, can you write about that? Um, so, finally, um, Pat, how difficult is for you, no matter what your, I know it's Brad. <laughs> I was just testing to make sure I know it's Brad. <laughs> I, need to get a, I need to get a good laugh out of him. Um, so how do you remain neutral and trustworthy to the public when you do write and report there are no biases or hidden agendas in your work? Well, so I'm a commentator, so I'm writing op-eds. I, I don't remain neutral, but I'm upfront about it. Right? I'm not presenting myself as a reporter or neutral. Uh, I, I'm telling people, this is my stance, this is what I think, these are my takes. So I'm very upfront about that. So uh, there's not, that's not But even issue. in there, even in there, 
you don't want to be a propagandist for someone, a tool from someone. That work has absolutely. integrity too. At least I'm asking, do you come to your own conclusions? Yeah, absolutely. Not manipulated, influenced by somebody else's agenda. Yeah, no, I do not. And one of the way, one of the best ways to do that is to really hold yourself accountable to the facts, right? When you're making a claim, you're including the sources. You're using good data. You are. Um, not repeating the talking points that just everyone's saying and really thinking for yourself on every issue. That's what I try to do. Everything that President Trump's doing, you know, what, regardless of what my general opinion of him, I look at that issue. Is it good or is it bad? Right? Rather than getting caught up in the hashtag resist or the hashtag MAGA, right? so I don't want to uh, fall into that kind of partisan bias. Um, and that's, why I, that's how I try to style my commentary. Now, Jason, you're more, you're more of a veteran. How, how challenging does it remain for you, especially being on the editorial and the management side? Well, yeah, from, from my perspective, you know, one of the hard things is when I you know, get op-ed submissions from uh, people who don't work for us, uh, sometimes there are people who are not upfront and they are not transparent about you know, where their opinions are coming from or, or where their facts are coming from. Sometimes uh, we'll have people submit something and they have no expertise in a certain area. You know, they might be a, a pastor who's writing about ethanol or, or something like that, or a, a former member of Congress who uh, you know, is writing about a, a very obscure topic for no clear reason. And you kind of think about it and you think, who, who would have uh, you know, a muddied interest in, in getting this opinion out there? Who might be uh, you know, supplying f some funds for this person to say this? Uh, and, and that might be the reason that they're writing this piece. So that, that's something that we have to be careful for and make sure that there's no one who's saying something just because they're getting paid to say it. Here's, here's why I bring this up as we wrap up the Stromcast. You know, uh, ABC's Six Seconds of Defame saying Paul Manafort charged on six manslaughters where it just found itself on the Chiron. And then they say that's just something we do in practice. I mean, you don't practice with things unless it's the truth. I mean, we're talking about ABC. I mean, how does something, because when you see something like that, you, it's indefensible, but everybody is subjected to the issue of integrity. I mean, that was just shocking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's an instance where the, you know, whoever made that mistake needs to be held accountable. I'm not saying they need to be fired. Do you um, think they you should know. be fired? No, I mean, uh, if there was, if it was an intentional thing that they wanted to do that what do you mean on purpose. Intentional? Well, you know, you never know. What if someone is, is thinking why put they're it, doing a million things why a put, second? I put that. I mean, this is a serious business. I mean, you are a. You people trust you. They come to you as their source of information. Right. He should be even he even should be in fired. a situation, I would never, off camera or before we're going on the show, put up some script to make fun of Nancy Pelosi. A Bill Clinton, uh, anyone? I just no, that's just, good. Yeah, you you just can't do that. Well, I think it needs to be investigated. All it takes is a little glitch. Yeah, that's all it takes. Yeah, I mean, for people like like the three of us who are on camera regularly, we've all seen the scripts, uh, some mistake in the script or something. And if for people to be doing that intentionally it's or not as a joke, I'm saying a joke. That you should be fired. That's not a joke. It's but, not funny. Because everything you do going forth is questioned. All your and the hard-working reporters like yourself and Brad, who work so hard for the institution, for the brand, you put in the heavy lifting, you make sure you check your facts, and all of a sudden, someone does this to your brand, then you become a part of that uh, of that character issue and for your network. The American people don't really trust the media. Yeah, you can't separate yourself from. I, I, I wouldn't, but I I ask these questions in this podcast because I want people to still realize that. While this happens to ABC, that is not who we are. And we have to talk about it and remind people that there's no place for that and we have to condemn it. I want to thank 
um, Brad and Jason um, for joining us today on this strong cast with your host Armstrong Williams. Join us for another strong cast in the days and months ahead.